welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summary. Hey everybody, this week I am joined by Nikhil Malhotra, and he's Chief Innovation Officer and the creator of Makers Lab, which is a unique thin cubator space within Tech Mahindra with 20 plus years of experience. So Nikhil's been a researcher all his life. He's now leading the growth of AI, machine learning, robotics, and quantum research within Tech Mahindra. Nichols' area of personal research has shown how quantum computing, neuroscience, and health tech inspires the growth of AI and how the two fields can merge in the future. What an intro that is. I am looking forward to this, Nichols. So welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, sir? Uh, good, good, James. Glad to be here. Excellent, excellent. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Nichols? I'm actually in Pune, where I reside at the moment, James. Um, it's a place which is about two hours away from Mumbai. Haven't caught you at a, a bad time. What's the time difference there? You must be, it must be evening there, right? It is about 20 minutes to five. Uh, okay. So it's about quite a good time, right? I Lovely. Middle of the day for an entrepreneur, that I think. Obviously, so the way that we start these podcasts is we get you to get you to tell your story. Heck of a story it is from the sounds of things. So I'm looking forward to getting into it. But by all means, sir, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how, how you got to where you are? Yeah, no, absolutely, James. I think, um, incidentally, I've also written a book um, about a couple of months back, which tells me tells tells people about my story. But I think um, the story is pretty simple. I, I I started off as, or I was born and brought up in Delhi, the capital of India, and. In a relatively well-to-do family, my father and my, you know, my family has always been in business. Uh, but um, I was always what you call the quintessential rebel within the family. They sometimes call me black sheep. If you was to, you know, if you were to ask my mother and talk to her, she would probably say. And when my first child was born, she said, "I'm glad it's a boy because now you would see the other end of life, which I saw." So <laughs> I was pretty naughty and uh, went through a lot of these cases. And in fact, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, a lot of people know about Indian street food. And mm. uh, one of the most quintessential Indian street food is Golgappas, right? So those those sweet balls that come in and yep. you put the water yep. inside of it. Uh, I was about about eight or nine years old, uh, right about the age my my older one is. And one day we saw, and in, India has that uh, phenomenon of having those, what we call as, you know, radies or whatever. And they're, they're basically small movable vehicles where they actually get these golgappas, et cetera, and serve you. So one day I, I I was actually playing with my friends and I saw nobody was there. So I actually went over um, to that vehicle. I took one of the golgappas, made it, ate it. I realized, wow, this is great and nobody's watching. And um, I suddenly started eating about four or five of them. Now suddenly I realized, look, my friends need to be part of this party as well. So I brought it and I, I think by the end of the night, we had about 50 of those. I think that guy would have, you know, and he didn't come back. He, I, I don't know where, where the guy was, where the owner was. He couldn't come back. And I even, I, I even went up to my friend's mother and told, told her, look, I've got a gift for you. This is a Golgappa that I've just gotten it and you can possibly eat it. Uh, you know, the night was all hunky-dory. I went over, went to sleep. Early morning, I actually see a commotion in front of my house. And my dad's actually there in front of it and there's that Golgappa wala and somebody has told him that he's the guy who actually got your Golgappas and he finished it. So he's actually asking dad for remuneration. He's saying, look, I've, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm a poor guy. You've got to pay, pay me money. So I got woken up by my mom and I was actually done. I was downstairs and I, I, I pretended as if nothing has happened. I said, Excellent. Look, 
this was all a friend's trick. I, I don't know this. <laughs> but I remember my dad, I my dad yeah, turning back and giving me his five-hander. And the looks <laughs> of it was, was stayed with me for about about <laughs> 10 to 15 years, which I didn't want to do something like this. So that's what, that was a kind of kind of a rebel story that I used to be. And I, I and this was a lot of naughty stuff that we did. Uh, you know, that that's all been captured inside the book. But I think life and, and I always I never wanted to study. I always wanted to play football. Um, hmm. I know soccer is the new term, but we used to play a lot of football and I I was in the school team, played well. Uh, but suddenly India during those times didn't have that kind of a provision where you could become a footballer and you could earn a good amount of uh, money, in, you know, or maybe, you know, coming from a business family, it was not considered as a profession. Hmm. I, uh, I even decided one day to run away and join Tata Football Academy, which was the only academy in the country. Right. This was in Calcutta and I was in Delhi. But that's... That's another story. And I think, um, yeah, so life happened. I did my engineering, did my M-Tech um, from Melbourne, from RMIT. I came back to India to do something, um, you know, something interesting because it was always a nature of, you know, building something new, doing something and trying something out. And I joined IBM and IBM was a great experience. I think IBM taught me the idea of research, taught me how you could look at certain things, look at the why. And um, joined TechM after that. This was in 2007. The first seven years really went about discussing how IT services really function, right? So mm. how does the services industry really work? How does the tech work? But 2014, I got really bored out of it. I said, uh, look, enough is enough. I'm going to go back to India. The you know the conditions changed. The country's changed. I'd rather do my own startup. And I actually landed back in India to do my own startup. It was my CEO now of the company. And he said, look, you don't do a startup. Why don't you start an entrepreneurship kind of a system within TechM? And that was the idea where Makers Lab really got into this structure where we set up this R&D in 2014. And uh, there's a funny incident that I was looking for a place for the lab and we wanted to build one of the swankiest labs. Or in fact, people wanted to build one of the swankiest, la- swankiest labs. But I decided to go to a wet kitchen. And, and you know, there was actually utensils that were washed over there. And the only reason was it looked like a like, kind of a lab. It looked like kind of a garage. Um, so that's where the lab has been ever since it's actually now grown to 10 locations. But that's in a nutshell my story. It's all, always been a kind of rebel story for me. That's really nice, man. Re- a rebel story. It's interesting. I, I suppose going against the grain and trying things is part of that. Finding where the boundary is, finding um, you know perhaps the boundary of, of or learning what, what good and bad are. And it, it, it's interesting that you've always seemed to push those boundaries let's say and an incredible amount of freedom as well from the sounds of things to do that perhaps enabled by parents that have been in business or entrepreneurship that have I guess allowed you to explore that in your childhood which has given you even in the way that you speak right this this kind of freedom to say and express yourself however you like which is definitely now coming across in your professional life and everything that you're doing it's nice. It's refreshing. It's it's amazing, and I think, yeah, I mean, all all credit to you, all credit to your parents for giving you that environment to do those things in. It's just a shame the footballing career never worked out, right? I mean, the India soccer team <laughs> may well have needed you <laughs> from the sounds of things. I don't know what rebel nature we could bring in, but I think there's still a long time for Indian soccer. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right, James. I think I was very lucky to actually get parents who could who could give me this freedom of choice, right? Yeah. And, and and things to explore. And obviously, we had the means as well. Um, the economics really work mm-hmm. out when you are in a business family. 
it gives you that ability to try out new things. And I think that was possibly the reason. So then you mentioned engineering, MTech, I believe you said MIT at one point as well. Lots of stuff to do here. So why, why engineering? How did you eventually then work your way through to, you know, IBM, TechM, health? Like, talk me through that bit of the journey in a bit more detail. I'll, I'll be very, very honest. I had no clue what I was doing. So engineering <laughs> was the only place that you could get into. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, I didn't want to join dad's business. I think that was one of the best things that I could do because I, uh, that was actually being getting into that grindstone and that was not my psyche. So I think what's the next best thing? So you see a child fiddling with, um, with a little bit of robots. You see a child fiddling with screwdrivers. Your parents say, look, he's a scientist that he's born. And, you know, that's, that gets ingrained into you. So when my dad asked, what do you want to do? I said, eh, I can do medical or I can do engineering. So he said, look, you've always been fiddling with screwdrivers. Why don't you take up engineering? And that's the reason I took up engineering. And, and it, was, it was absolutely nonchalant kind of a response that I took it. But I think once engineering happened, James, um, which was which was I did it from Pune University, um, uh, which is one of the best universities in the country, and I did it. You could say I barely scraped through it. I said, "Look, engineering is done." I think I wanted to get into something which gave me that ability to create, mm-hmm. and um, and engineering gave me the idea to fiddle with things, and um, and and computer science and memtech mm-hmm. gave me the idea to create something new. And as a result of that, I said, look, uh, we have the means. We can go to some place like Australia. I would have two advantages. And this is what my dad said, two advantages. You would see a new country. You would meet new people. But you would also look at making your life on your own, right? In India, you get more protected Mm -hmm. around by folks. But over there, you're all on your own. You would learn two things. One, the value for money. Second, the value for how do you live your life in in a completely new country. And that was primarily the reason. I was never... I was, there was never an iota of doubt that I was supposed to come back to India. It was always there that I would come back to India, but it's just that that phase that I want to go ahead. I want to try out new things. I want to see what the world really works out as and then come back to India as well. So that was the reason why I joined um, RMIT in Australia. But that experience really changed my life. I I think the education difference at that point in time between a Western world and India was immense. Of course, that that gap is reducing now. And that gap really gave me the idea of understanding the why. Um, mostly people think about what and how's. Um, mm. But I think RMIT was one university that taught me, look, you've got to look at the why rather than the what and the how. And that's where my engineering career really took shape. And I said, look, this is the place where I want to be and I want to do because it gives me those abilities to create new things. Um, and that, it got stuck. And I think that's where I am, where I am. Then. It's a lovely explanation, actually, to the again coming back to freedom but freedom that that education then gives you in engineering the freedom to then create i think it's super interesting now that we're seeing so many medical students that are engineers and actually they then move to medicine and when when engineers do a ward round they don't just complain about what they're seeing they figure out a solution in their mind as they see it. They understand a completely different framework to then add it to healthcare. And so that culture of 
suffering through because the system is just what it is, is starting to really get flipped on its head from what I've seen because you've got computer scientists, data scientists and engineers on ward rounds and their medical students second, but their engineers first. And I think that's really, and, and vice versa as well, people that have done medicine that then go into engineering. And I think learning those two frameworks, you then get those two, those two worlds colliding within the same person, which is just incredibly useful. And I, I, it, it's an interesting thought less about freedom as well. I actually watched the documentary last night. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's called Abstract. The series is called Abstract, The Art of Design. And one of them is by a, or, or highlights mm. a toy maker a toy designer. Yes, yeah, so she's a, she she designs toys and she designed these toys that are essentially massive pieces of wood but then massive kind of screws and bolts and things like that but that children can make these things mm. that are mm. bigger than them mm. like literally physically bigger than them and they have some have wheels and some have propellers and some have like bodies and and look more wow. human and others look others look machines but they they're distributing these across china and, and america but the, the point that i'm making is these kids just get the freedom to express themselves and they're not there's no measurement yeah. of success there's no measurement of how good or bad it is they are just creating and yeah. they learn so much about collaborating because some of them they they don't have the strength to hold one piece on their own so they have to learn to collaborate with somebody else again the joy of engineering with somebody else or building or creating with someone else they learn about co-founding in that early stage and all those different things and they learn that the leaders emerge and it's it's just it was just super interesting and it just showed me that you know in in schools and in life like what are we measuring yeah true. what does the school system really true. measure when it's so academic when really the freedom to create will just show so much and you pair that with well why do we need straight a's in medicine and healthcare and should we should we be measuring and collaborating on other things and creating more i don't know but art is an interesting one isn't isn't it art leads with creation and science leads with theory and the two could perhaps learn from each other perhaps i don't know i'm talking nonsense now perhaps no but i, you I tell think me. it's you uh, no, no, I, I think you're absolutely right in my maker's lab what we do is we've actually started learning from kids um, what we do really? every three months, we have a kind of, we've got a kidathon. So kids from seven to 14 years of age come to the lab and they see the technology. Um, they touch and feel it. Oh my gosh. And then they tell us what's the new idea. And we've got some spectacular ideas from these kids. A, because they're not bounded by commerce. They're not bounded by what they want to wow. do and appear or, or what it needs to be. Uh, so I remember about three years back, I got a kid in the lab. He was about seven or eight, same age as my son now. And he said, look, um, I'm, and he saw a robot that we were building. And he says, uh, look, uncle, this looks great, but does it have a sound or a voice? I can talk to it. So we suddenly realized, look, we've, we've done the design, but we've missed out an important component, which is communications. So this child has actually taught us. Uh, some of these kids actually work with us. They actually say, look, I am okay in my summer vacation to come down to the lab, do a little fiddling here and there with computers, maybe learn a little bit about, and, and some of them are great. They're even learning AI and machine learning as well at this point. So you can imagine... That we are at that stage where we are, it's kind of a reversal of the pyramid where we used to learn from teachers and we used to think everything that a teacher says is sacrosanct and you've got to get that on your notebook because you want to get some marks. But now the pyramid is that these kids are teaching the art of the impossible to us, right? And I think it's just the reversal of that pyramid. 
I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. So tell me more about the Makers Lab. Tell me about quantum computing, AI, and healthcare. Tell me how all of those things come together in the Makers Lab. So I think I started this in 2014. I had the I told you I had the idea to come back to India and do you know a kind of a startup. So we settled down to a lab which was an R and D sector. We had again same James. He had absolutely no bloody clue what we wanted to do. And, <laughs> and I'll tell you honestly, I had seen the I had seen the Western world. I had seen what technology could do, but I had nothing of my own to actually look at. So we started looking at fiddling with ideas. So, you know, at that point, mobile communications were, you know, were going on. We started looking at mobiles, uh, mobile technology kind of creation. But one day we were having tea and suddenly one of these gentlemen comes to me and says, look, this guy is fiddling with the bike stand. Let's make a bike that stands on its own. And remember, Boston Dynamics is still not there. It's 2014. Uh, <laughs> so we said, okay, uh, let's do that. <laughs> so... So how do we how do we do it? Who's got the bike? We've all got cars now, right? We've got we professionals. We 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 own cars. Who's got a bike? Suddenly one guy said, "I've got a kid bike at my place." All right, get it. So we this guy gets the kid bike into the lab. We start fiddling with sensors, trying to look at center of gravity, trying to be you know very intelligent in terms of the scope that we're trying to do. And three months later, we achieved absolutely zero zilch, nada, nothing. <laughs> the bike still stands. <laughs> <laughs> and that bike is now is now hungover in Maker's Lab as Amazing. possibly the first feedback of failure that we got, right? We, because we couldn't objectify technology. We were just getting into tech. But later we decided, look, we objectify the whole tech piece. Um, so we looked at three vectors at that point. We looked at AI, of course, which was pretty prominent at that time. We looked at AR, VR, which was prominent at that time. Of course, now it has turned into metaverse. And we looked at something beyond AI. Quantum was not there. It was just mm. in the realms of research or, you know, in terms of universities. Today, of course, that, that space that we, we do has built into three vectors. One is something that we are doing is neuroscience-inspired AI, where we do a lot of research ourselves. We look at metaverse, of course, which has changed, and we look at quantum computing in terms of what we are doing. But I think the journey that you want to, you know, that I love to tell people is the journey of courage that really happened within Maker's Lab. A, we were able to make, you know, we were able to give that experience to customers but be the kind of people that joined me um, in the lab are a kind of mavericks who are essentially there. So well, I've got an Uber driver who's working with me, James. I, I, and the story of that Uber driver is that um, I met him because he was an Uber driver driving taxi and he used to drop me from Pune to Mumbai. And one day he says, I want to be in tech. And I told him, look, learn Python if you want to be in tech. And this is 2016 or 15, if I may. Um, I come back from Australia from a tour and visit and I see on the front seat of his car a laptop and he's actually working on Python codes. Mm. Imagine this guy has no connection to tech in, you know, in, 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 in his entire life. I gave, I, I gave him an offer. I said, uh, why don't you join us in the lab? This gentleman joins, joins us in the lab, learns AutoCAD, C++, Python and designing within the period of next one year, is now an employee and is now taking technology back to his own grassroots which is the villages of india so you know when people tell me you you need to upskill i tell them it's not about upskilling it's about upwilling um you you can take the example of this uber driver and this he upwilled himself to learn new tech and that's what the idea of makers lab was the idea was that if you've got an idea don't be scared if it fails give it mm -hmm. a try the mm -hmm. cycle uh, or the bicycle that we've got is the is the reminder of what we've done and why we have failed 
But the idea is that there are lots of lots of failures in your life. But that is where innovation and technology can really combine forward and, and, and go forward with. I've got another example. I've got a, I've got a kid who's borderline autistic. I found hmm. him in one of the campuses in Pune and he was building some games. And I said, uh, look, great game. Uh, what do you want to do next? He says, I only want to build games. And that's it. I don't know how the money would come, but this is what my life is. I'm always interested in games. Now, in order to deal with this kid, it's very, very difficult because we don't have the, and we, we didn't have the mental process. If you talk loudly to him, he would cry. He would leave the lab and go away. So we had to really tune ourselves toward that kind of a story. And one day I asked him, I said, look, what do you want to do? He says, I can only build games. Can I build you one? I said, all right, I've given you about a month to build it. Within three weeks, this, this young kid builds me a 300-pager role-playing game, which is not possible by some of the best gamers in the world. And I found a nugget somewhere hiding because of the change of the neurodiverse culture that he came from or his neurodiversity. And we said, look, you're going to lead gaming within the lab itself. So the lab today um, uh, does research in AI, does research in neuroscience, does research in quantum. But there's a whole connection of these people as mavericks within the lab who are doing all of this stuff, right? They're, they could be independently brilliant, but the idea and my, my work is to actually make them work as a team and create those stories for, of course, the customers, but also society. So that's how the structure of lab is. That's awesome. So who are the customers that come to you and what do they want? Well, almost all customers. I think uh, Tech Mahindra today has about 1,200 customers across the board, across the um, world. And almost all of them have a need for pushing the innovation boundary in terms of what they can do special and extra. And those are the customers that actually come to me. Like, for example, we're working with um, media houses. We're working with manufacturing companies. We're even working with health tech companies to actually solve some of the challenges, which may not be solved in a general IT services environment because a general environment would be more service-oriented in terms of you've given me work, I'll solve that. And yeah. you, there's less time for people to think an outside-in purview. Uh, that's where Makers Lab sits in. It's, it thinks about an outside-in purview. But it also thinks about challenges that the society faces because most of these problems can actually become solutions for our customers as well. So I'll give you an example. Um, India, by definition, is a land of 27 languages, mother tongues, and 1645 dialects. And if people say that you you can go in with, let's say, a Google Alexa or, or you know, Alexa or a Google um, uh, kind of a home, India would have a hard problem accepting it, right? Because obviously there's so much, so many languages and dialects that you come in with. What do we do, right? And I was actually part of one of the advisory committee in, um, in India, which is called Atal Incubation Center, which actually does a kind of student innovation program. Now, I found something very interesting. The interesting thing that I found was India doesn't innovate. Bharat innovates more. And when I say Bharat, I'm talking about rural India because the mm. challenges occur more in the rural sector. They've yes. got more things to solve. Uh, for us, we are very well endowed. We we have laptops and iPads and we can talk to each other and so on and so forth. But the real challenge lies in that rural sector. Can we have some of these kids give us those challenges and problems and can we solve them? This has resulted in one of our language construct that we have built as a first in India called Bhamal or Bharat Markup Language. What it does is it allows any kid in the rural sector to code. When I say code, literally code um, uh, HTML and CSS in the language of their choice. So they can use Gujarati, they can use Marathi, they can use Punjabi, they can use the 10 languages of the Indian subcontinent and they can code 
themselves so that they don't they're not restricted by english because english by definition is only spoken by 20% of people 80% of india doesn't speak english how do you bring that synergy between india and bharat or whatever we call as rural india actually gives us an idea that now this can be applied to nlp in terms of some other countries right so when you solve a societal issue you actually get the solution to a problem with the customer faces awesome and it sounds like you guys are just incredible problem solvers and the minds that you have around the table in order to solve these problems it's no surprise that you i imagine you've got very big corporate people coming to you health tech companies etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm interested how now specifically in health uh whether you've got examples of this playing out or whether you want to talk more broadly about that intersection that i mentioned in your introduction about quantum ai and healthcare. I'd love to know where you think, because you're you're at the cutting edge of this now, as in you are the people thinking about how to merge those things. So I'm interested to learn from you. Where are we now with AI, quantum, and healthcare? And what are the things that you are talking about internally at the Makers Lab about the potential here? What sort of solutions can we look forward to? And and I suppose importantly, what impact can we look forward to as a result of some of the things that you guys are now talking about? So I think what, I think that's a great question. I think um, a lot of people don't ask me as to what we are we are looking forward to because I think a large part of the world really thinks about what's being done uh, yes. at this point. I think what we what we are really looking at, James, is um, we think that the age of AI, where it was only using, um, if we may say, discriminative models, is slowly getting over. AI is really going into the generative modeling part. And I think generative modeling will become huge in terms of what we're doing. There is, of course, a flip side to the technology that we see, which is, of course, you are seeing more fakes being generated by AI. But I think that's just the beginning part because you get excited with tech. It's like a child playing with tech. So you want to create all of these things. So it's possibly that age of AI, the generative part of AI, which is allowing people to create more fakes. So you've got more fake faces, you've got more fake sounds, fake art, so on and so forth. But what we are seeing with AI grow forward is a cult of or, or a part of human brain would actually be brought in or, or essence of human brain will be brought in into AI. And that's neuroscience inspired AI. And I'll give you an example. At this point in time, while I'm talking to you, you are registering my thoughts, but you're also fiddling with your thumb. You may be moving your legs at the same time. It's all the human cognition that is essentially trying to produce one organism, an individual, which is you, James, and me, Nikhil. And that makes us us and you, you. But that brain uses only 40 watts of power. And it has some intricacies and extent and circuits which are trying to produce that kind of a intelligent, sentient uh, system, which you are and I am. We are not saying that we are creating sentient machines, but we are trying to see if portions of that pieces of AI or that neuroscience that we see from brain can actually be brought in into AI to make it a little bit better. And why? It's become very specific now, right? So um, a, a convolutional neural network would only solve a vision problem. A recurrent neural network or an LSTM would only solve a language problem. But a human being actually looks at a lot of things differently, right? And we do it all together. Can we have multi-modes of that AI and can we take some of these you know, advantages from the human neuroscience facet? Why we, uh, how we started this, we have actually started using Sanskrit as the base for this. And, and, and again, mm. Sanskrit as a meaning doesn't have any anything. What we are saying is, we're saying that we are looking at fMRIs from people who learned Sanskrit, who learned English, 
who learned Hindi or any other language. And we're seeing how multilingual systems can actually make you much more diverse and how your brain structures can really evolve. Your broker's area can evolve in terms of how many languages do you know and you speak within your family or outside and so on and so forth. So that's just the starting point and we are actually trying to do that. Now, quantum is just the, is just the most significant step forward and the most obvious step forward because of the compute power. We think that uh, whatever we are doing with AI, we un unless and until we make AI compliant with the human neuroscience sectors or the, or the human brain or cortex, AI would need immense amount of power to calculate. And some of the classical problems are still not solved by AI. And, you know, just to give you an example, if there are 20 people in the room and you want to, um, you know, you, you want to place them around in terms of their age, their, you know, their sexual, uh, uh, their gender, their sexual preferences, so on and so forth, you would have at least 20 factorial as, as, a, mm. um, as a system of features to actually test. Now, that 20 factorial features is very difficult for AI systems to solve, even classical. Um, similarly, for molecular design, specifically in health tech, for molecular design that we are looking at, today's, uh, today's computers and classical machines can only look at caffeine, for example and even model caffeine as a molecule. But there are hundreds and thousands of molecules. The body is made out of proteins and peptides and stuff and amino acids. What can we do to actually understand that? And that's where AI um, and, and, of course, this computing power would play an impact. Now, what's the impact, if you may ask? And I think we, uh, I call it that COVID was kind of a chief digital officer for all of us. Uh, <laughs> it turned us data scientists into some kind of virologist. And trust me, I would know very little virology. I would only know the basics. You are the, you are the guru. But I can certainly tell you that for the first half of COVID that happened, we actually learned what a virus was doing. Very, very nominal stuff. Right? We, we got into lessons. We started learning because there's always a kind of picture within Maker's Lab that you've got to learn more. So mm. what we really decided out of it, and this could be wrong, but what we thought was the entire viral structure is nothing but an NLP string. It's a string of amino acids. Can we play around with this string? Can we move around, right? And that was a data scientist's purview of what we did. So, so we said, okay, let's do molecular docking then. Uh, you know, this is one of the terminologies used in the healthcare sector. Let's try our hands into it. Let's see what we can do with AI. So we actually looked at about 8,000 FDA drugs and we wanted to do a repurposing. Of course, we had people who knew medicine and, you know, there are some doctors in the company as well. We, we got their help and we said, look, can we do something where we can look at a ligand-based system um, and a structure where we look at old drugs and we can repurpose them to actually say whether it attacks the COVID molecule, the alpha uh, molecule or the alpha particle that was there at that time. So we, we applied science. We applied this data science, science technique. We applied generative models. We even applied a little bit of genetic modeling and we said, Look, out of these 8,000 FDA drugs, 17 make sense for us well, because of mean binding energies uh, and because of, you know, the kind of docking that they do in the molecules. That was our job and we stopped it. That rebel nature also pushes us to say, look, it's not enough. We've mm. done it. We could have released that result. But can we do go a step forward? And we went ahead with a step forward with one of our partners in Bengaluru where we said, can you do an in vitro simulation or in vitro test? of these 17 molecules. Those 17 molecules were brought down to five and then to three. Again, they did some in vitro. We said, is that enough? Have we done this? He said, no, no, let's do one more thing. And he says, what is that? Let's create a 3D printed biolung and even um, mimic some of the biological events that you see in COVID-19, right? Like for example, IL-1 beta uh, secretions and maybe kind of inflammation in the cell. 
So we actually 3D printed a bio lung outside the human body. And we actually started testing these and one emerged victorious. And lucky, normally I was told by my friends that this doesn't happen. Normally what happens is this is ools and ools of trials and in vitro, um, in, in situ, and then you possibly get into where you are. But somehow, luckily, the way you started off and the way you ended after an year, you found the molecule. And that molecule today, we have actually given it for patenting, but we are very lucky to have found that and said, look, this is one of those attack points for uh, for COVID-19. This is one of those anti-diabetic molecule. It's also got SGLT2. It's an inhibitor. So it can possibly do this. And it started off with only curiosity. Uh, wow. So I think that's what is the impact that we can make to businesses today. What a story that is. And I suppose what a success in a few ways as well. I think learning what I did in one documentary last night about the design process, you know, the it's interesting what you said actually, that the first stage is is always listening. And they they really, they really plugged that in this thing I watched last night of that you have to listen and you have to have empathy for the the people for whom you, the problem you're trying to solve and you, you you can't go in with any bias and you can't go in with any preformed ideas. You have to just sit there and listen to understand the problem. And I suppose with something with COVID-19, the problem is so vast, but actually there's a framework there to apply what you guys know how to do with, as you say, molecular docking and it's just a string. It's just, it's just a list of amino acids in a certain order. We can figure this out. We just need the computing power to figure this out. But to get a result, to get a result that can lead to impact is a success of your process, as I've just talked about. But also, I assume commercially to then create more impact. I assume it's a success for your team to feel like they are part of solving a global current problem as well, which then has positive impacts for what they then go on to do, the energy within that team, that organization, growth, like all of those different things. It's it's an incredible story of success. I mean, can I ask a really stupid question at this point? So, and I'm sure I probably should know the answer to this. You whittle that list of drugs from an infinite number down to 17, down to one. You get there. You, and you, with your 3D printed bio lung and everything that you've done, you go, right, this is the winner, this is the drug. What happens now? You've got a molecular formula in front of you that's potentially going to do all of these things. You mentioned diabetes. Yeah. It's got secondaries all over the place of what it could do. What happens now on a, very, on a really stupid practical level like you, with this molecular formula in front of you? Do you just hope no one looks over your shoulder and has a look at that molecular formula and goes, oh, that's quite nice. Let's try and do something with that. I mean, what, do you sell it as, a, as, a, as an NFT? Like, what, do you, what do you do? I don't, I don't know. I think you know it better than me, Jim. I think it, there needs to be human trials, of course. And I think what we are thinking about is once the patent goes through and once it comes, I think we would, you know, science has a very peculiar way of going wrong as well. And these are theoretical parts. So what we do is we would we found the molecule, but we are now looking at, let's say, in another six months, we may start the human trials to see mm-hmm. what's happening. And I, I think even before we go towards a human trial, there is an animal trial um, attached to it. There's a protocol in which we can possibly go ahead. But I think, I, I think to your point, the fundamental part is not getting... Um, not getting stopped because there's a f- impossible and implausible challenge in front of you. And I think that's what I've learned all my years. And that's what I instill in the team. Uh, what is interesting is 
can you solve that implausible challenge by breaking it down into small little things, something like first principles. So we apply first principles, even today. Even if it's a problem with an autonomous car in India, we have applied first principles to say, look, what is the first problem that we've got to solve? And we, we are building one of these. Uh, the first problem is, can we do lane driving? And, you know, somebody comes up and says, look, India doesn't have lanes. It doesn't have markings. Okay. So the first problem that you've got to solve in India is to actually say whether lanes come in or not and you've got a drivable path. So that's the first problem. So I can't solve a problem which the world has solved already. And we know there are autonomous cars working in London. We have the autonomous cars working in US. But that formula doesn't work in one part of the world. So you've got to break it down into small little components and see whether you can do. And again, result was a very, very welcome change because it's a derivative of the effort um, that we've put in. We never went in with the result. We only thought that if we could progress this, there are two advantages. Number one, our people would learn the art and the idea of how AI gets applied in health tech or biotech in, in general. Number two, I can possibly use some of these things that I'm doing over here with my customers and even you know later down the line. What happened was very, very lucky in terms of we finding a partner who could do these tests, one who could make a 3D printed biolung. But I think the, the, the process did not start with the result in mind. The process really started looking at, look, we've got something, it's a problem, let's solve it. Um, or, or let's try and solve it, let's do that. And we do it with almost everything that comes in um, into the lab. And we say, let's break it down into small little components. Let's solve, let's apply the first principle approach in solving them. Let's look at the person in charge and the context in, you know, in, in, in purview. And then we go ahead. And I think that's really research and science um, in, in its generic sense. And I think that's what I learned from RMIT. You're right. It's first principles as well to go back to that. And even as you're saying that, you know, I, I'm inspired even, even listening to you with, with problems that I perceive as amounting too big to climb. And uh, as you've pointed out, just take a couple of steps and then reassess, you know, or at least get to that ridge and then the next ridge and then the next ridge. It's interesting that uh, I think I needed to hear that today. I think some people listening might have needed to hear that today. So thank you for that. While I've got you, I'm going to ask you one more question. And you mentioned it very, very, very briefly. You guys have been thinking about AR, VR, that kind of thing. And you said that's now the metaverse. What are your thoughts? Metaverse, as it pertains to healthcare, maybe if you want to bring that in. But what I'm just interested because I see I see and I read a lot at the moment. Obviously, with Facebook changing their name to Meta, it's obviously out there a heck of a lot more now. Although it's been talked about in healthcare for a little while, and the use cases here and there and everywhere, and know, telemedicine and other problems that might be solved with the metaverse. What are your thoughts about the metaverse? Do you have any specific thoughts around it in healthcare? Yeah, I think uh, if you want to do a surgery on a metaverse, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> uh, I think that's my thought. But I think I'm very, very positive. <laughs> but I think I'm very positive and gung-ho about how metaverse is going to change the life sciences domain in general. For example, number one is, okay. and this is one of the use cases that we're thinking about. If you look at Docons today, or, or maybe Practo, for example, you are essentially in a waiting queue to actually connect to a doctor who would who would either listen to you, have a chat with you, give you prescription of medicines, etc., I think metaverse may engage may give you a better engagement in terms of that, both from a doctor's point of view and 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 from a patient who's not got a substantially bad ailment that needs a doctor's visit. Um, I can talk that my son's got a, a kind of cough and cold. What is 
your solution to it, or maybe you can prescribe some medicines. And that's typically happening during COVID times as well. That may happen during the metaverse. I think the second thing that may happen um, during the in the healthcare sector is education. I think I can bolster the education within the healthcare sector, whether it's about trying to tell you how do you do a CPR, which is a very which is the first state kind of an education to a point where I can even talk about organs and supplies and, and stuff that your molecules can do. I think one thing that may get augmented much broader in a broader sense in the metaverse in healthcare than any other thing would be, how do we look at and visualize molecules in their connection to what the impact is to an individual? And that's still a little while away but I think these are those three pointers that I think metaverse would really change the way we look at healthcare. Um, even for a normal layman person, I don't know how this molecule really reacts, right? And 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 there's a lot of talk about personalized uh, medicine, personalized healthcare. But I think, do I want to see and understand what is the general nature of how this molecule reacts to me? Maybe a kind of educative um, uh, principle. Um, I think that is where metaverse may change uh, the healthcare domain. I love it. Nickel, thank you so much. And thank you for coming on. I genuinely felt inspired and genuinely learned a lot from you here about the things that you're doing. What is, what's going on at Tech Mahindra just sounds incredible. What's going on at the Makers Lab specifically just sounds incredible. That meeting of minds and the types of projects that you're working on, the approach that you guys take. I think if, uh, if I had more self-awareness when I was a bit younger, I might have lent more heavily into design and might have done more in the line of engineering or those types of things because uh, I always tend to direct the conversation here anyone who listens to this podcast is probably bored of me saying the same stuff but no it's been it's been incredible to hear about what you guys are up to and uh, I'd love to visit one day and, and see it all in action and uh, anytime and there's always time for you to learn something new so I, I keep learning so it's always time don't don't we all sir for people that do want to learn more or to get in touch with you or the team at the Makers Lab or Tech Mahindra more broadly, what's the best way for them to learn more about what you're up to and to get in touch with you? Yeah, I, I think Makers Lab is quite prominently displayed on techmahindra.com as a website in the innovation sector. And also there are emails, uh, they can reach out to us. Um, I, I think there's this just one thing I wanted to add. I think Makers Lab really personifies a word called courage, James. And I think, um, mm. and courage is not uh, strength. Uh, in general terminology, we've actually broken down the word courage. We say C means communicate and co collaborate. Um, if you do not, there's no innovation. I think everybody knows Tesla or Nikolai Tesla was a great inventor, but not an innovator because he couldn't scuttle the innovation across the world. There was no connection points, right? So, so collaborate. I think this is one of the principles of what Makers Lab does. O, which we learned because of the bicycle. And we said, look, if you can't objectify technology, if it can't help you, then there's no purpose of technology in general, right? So it's about good to way to say that we've applied this tech, but unless it affects a human life, there's no value for tech. Um, the you is basically you as a maker, right? So you are the maker um, and you're the maker of your destiny, but also the maker of all things that come in your life, right? And, and that's what we really believe that you should change the way you look at the world. Uh, the R is really rewiring your own psyche, James. Right? I think the we are endowed with two organs, which are really important. Uh, the heart, which pumps blood 24 by 7 involuntarily, and the brain, which needs your rewiring. I think it's the brain that needs rewiring. We've, we've had a dose of it during these two years when we were stuck in COVID saying, we've got to rewire your psyche. A is something that you said, and you, you, you inadvertently said, ask stupid questions every day. We have a principle. The reason why we go to first principles is because we ask stupid questions about things that we know as well. 
and of course things we don't know are even stupider right and i think don't get pestered by the fact that people would say hey look this is a stupid question we didn't understand look this is already known and well known in the world that doesn't really happen what this principle of asking stupid questions does is it tries to simplify a complex jargon and that's important for you to solve it um it may be very complex but you may solve it by asking a stupid question the g is of course goals everybody has goals but the e is something that we say empathize with yourself first don't empathize with somebody else if you go in a plane the first thing that the aerostatist does is says put on your mask first before you put on the mask of an infant or a person nearby important thing for innovation and getting out of the mold is that there are hundreds and thousands of potholes of despair that you get into in order to bring yourself back up and in order to raise your level of consciousness you've got to say look i'm doing right let's get up let's do this so it's empathy with yourself first then empathy with something else so if you follow the principles of courage um we normally open up makers lab to everybody who has um one or two or maybe all of these principles applied i love it nicole thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure it's a pleasure james thank you so much hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content 